theyeshiva.net. Okay, welcome everybody. Happy Hanukkah, everybody who's gracing us here physically and virtually. Today's class is dedicated by a dear friend, Siddharth Radhakrishnan. In honor of Sam, Ari, and Jim, thank you, thank you very much. Siddhartha, may God bless you in your journey and thank you for your friendship and love and dedication and partnership. It's also dedicated by Reb Nochem Litkowski and his family in honor of his father's yard site on the 19th of Kislev, Reb Shimon Ben Yisrael, his 51st yard site, and for a blessing for the whole family in all that they need. Thank you so much. There's a beautiful tradition about Hanukkah that's quoted in one of the very famous svarim known as the Reikeach, Rebeleze Reikeach, who explains the number of candles that we light during Hanukkah when you combine all of the flames, all of the candles, each day adding one, of course. So it comes out to be 36 candles. Because you have one, and then the second night two, and then the third night three, etc., all the way to the last night eight, Altogether, it comes out to the number 36, which means since we don't just light, the Gemara says that basically the halach of Hanukkah is you could light one candle per night. Those who want to be mahadr, every person lights one candle. But then, mahadrin mina mahadrin, the best way to do the mitzvah, which became the accepted norm by all Jews, is to increase each night one more flame, according to Bishillel, until the last night we do eight. So altogether, it makes up the number 36. What's the significance of the number 36? The significance is as follows. In, in Parshas Bereshis, in the, in the opening story of creation, the Torah says the first thing Hashem created was light. It's in the beginning when Hashem created heaven and earth. It says the earth was void and chaotic and there was darkness everywhere. Hashem said, let there be light. And there was light. And then it says he separated between the light and the darkness. Light became associated with day. And darkness became associated with night. And this was the creation of the first day. So the Gemara in Meseches Chagiga, page 12, asks the question. It seems strange because the sun and the moon were created only on Wednesday. And the Torah says later that the sun and the moon are what, the sun is what creates the cycle, of course, of day and night. Thank you so much. We all know the beginning of day is with dawn break and the sun rising. And night happens when the sun sets because of the unique solar cycle. So what's responsible for day and night is the sun and the cycle of the sun, the solar cycle, which is created only on Wednesday. That's a very big question. And one of the basic explanations is that the original day, the original light, the Chazal say as follows, the light that was created on the first day, you could see with it, it was a light that allowed you to perceive reality from one end of the world to the other end of the world. And then when Hashem saw the various generations of humanity the, the generation of the flood, the generation of the tower, he decided he has to hide this light. So Gonzai, he concealed this light until the until the time of Mashiach. So Vayara Lekimah Sa'arki Toiv, he saw that light was good. What mean? And what happened? 
it was, so to speak, too good, too intense, and therefore it went into hiding. It didn't disappear, it went into hiding until the times of Mashiach when it's going to be revealed. Which is, of course, a very strange idea, which needs explanation. Because if you don't want to create the light, don't create the light. You create the light, then you say, you know what? <laughs> it's not really good for this world, so we're going to hide it. So you hide it now. What was the Havaman? What was your thought? What was the conclusion? What's the purpose of this light? What's the significance of this? But this is that light. So it's not the same light that's generated by the sun, which is amazing, the light that's generated by the sun. Uh, Two seconds of electricity that comes from the sun to earth on a regular, from from the ordinary sun on a regular day, I think is more than all of the usage of electricity at any moment in the entire globe. That's two seconds of the power of the sun coming to earth, that electricity, how powerful it is, how potent it is. So that's incredible, that's amazing. But that's not the light that allows me to see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. That light was created on Yom Rishon on Sunday. And that was the first creation. Why was that the first creation? Only to be hidden and eclipsed and concealed until Mashiach comes. The Zohar says, where did he hide it? You always need a hiding place. Where did he hide the light? Huh? <laughs> so the Zayah says, he, he hid it in the Torah. There's a story about the Baal Shem Tev. A person came to the Baal Shem Tev, he lost his shvarim, he lost his oxen. He was looking for them. So the Baal Shem Tev opened up a chumash, he took a look, and he said that the oxen are in Breslau. They ended up, the thief took them to Breslau. That's where they are. So they asked the Baal Shem Tev, so, so it was. So they asked the Baal Shem Tev if he could see, why did he need a chumash? He looks in the chumash, how do you see where the oxen are? So he answered, because it says in Zohar, that the original light was hidden in the Torah. So when he opened up the chumash, he could see where the oxen are. Now you might say, it's a little bit of a strange way to use this light to find out where oxen are. But you see already Shmuel Hanavi was consulted, where Shaul HaMelech's he wasn't yet a king, where Shaul's father's donkeys were. So the Baal Shem Tev told him, these were the oxen. What, what is the meaning of all of this? Now, when Adam was created on Friday, that oir, Chazal say, that oir, that original light of the first day was available to him as the first human being. And therefore, it says, Lamed Vav Shim Our sages say, that light served Adam for 36 hours. Friday is 12 hours. Friday night is another 12 hours. That's 24 hours. And Shabbos day, which was another 12 hours, so 24 and 12 is 36 hours. Adam had access to that light on the first Shabbos of creation. Metzai Shabbos, darkness descended. Avram Adam got very scared. The Gemara says, that's when he took two flint stones and he generated fire. And that's why we make a bracha on fire, because after Adam ate from the eight Sadas, he couldn't have access to that light after Shabbos. Shabbos, he had access to the light, Adam and Chava, 36 hours. But after Shabbos, there was no access to the light. So all of this is really enigmatic. Hashem creates the light the first thing, it gets concealed. The Zoyah says it's hidden in the Torah. Adam has access to it for the first Shabbos. Metzai Shabbos, it's back in hiding, and Adam has no access to it, and that's why there's night. 
You don't see from one end of the world to the other end of the world, not by day, and by night, you, it's just time of darkness. Comes the Rekeach and says that the 36 candles of Hanukkah represent the 36 hours of that original light serving Adam on the first Shabbos of creation. So each one of these 36 flames over the eight nights of Hanukkah represents another hour of those 36 hours. And explains in the many svarim that Hanukkah, the lights that we kindle, are the Eir HaGonus. This is what it's called in svarim, Eir HaGonus, which means the light, Gonus means concealed, the light that was hidden, the light that was hidden on the first day of creation, and it's going to be revealed only when Mashiach comes, something of this light is manifested in the Hanukkah flames. It's brought that to us, it says in Tehillim, David HaMelech says, Zara in Kufyud Beis, Zarach Bachoshech Ur La Yesharim, which means he shined in the darkness the light for the righteous ones. So it's brought in Svarim that this refers to the lights of Hanukkah. Ur La Yesharim is the light that's reserved for the righteous one. Hashem reserved this light for Tzadikim, Vamech Kulam Tzadikim when Mashiach comes. But already in the darkness, even before Mashiach of Golos, Zarach Bachoshech. Hashem in the darkness gives something of that light, of that shine. That light of La'asid La'avai is already sowed and planted and shines in the darkness of exile through the lights of Hanukkah. And that's why it's spirit, we say in Aneris Halalu, it's one of the deeper explanations, that V'chol Shmoines Yimei Hanukkah Aneris Halalu Kodeshem V'ein Lanu Rishus L'Ishtamish Behen Ela L'Roisen Belvad we don't have the right or the permission to use this light, only to look at these lights. And that's why there's a custom and a tradition in so many communities to sit by the candles and look at the flames. Some people learn at the Hanukkah candles. Some people sing. Some people tell stories. Some people daven, say, tell them. Some people just gaze, gaze at the flames. <laughs> As somebody once said, how do you know that it's a good thing? Because you see how much resistance there is to it. <laughs> you try to sit down. People usually don't, don't mind sitting by nice flames and singing songs, but here there's a lot of resistance. So probably it's a, it's a powerful opportunity. What's this idea that I don't use it only because it's a unique type of light. It's not a light that I should be using to illuminate my room or my chamber or the dining room, the living room, the way, whatever, wherever the person is lighting the Hanukkah candles. To be able just to look at it. It's something unique, because it's a different type of light, it's a different caliber of light. Now one might ask the question, what does this mean? It's a regular flame. You take a wick and you kindle a wick, it's a regular light that anybody lights a fire any other night, any other time of the day or the night a person lights a fire. So it's not that oil. Nonetheless, the Rekeich is telling us that there's something in that ordinary flame when it's kindled as part of the mitzvah of kindling Hanukkah lights, that has a special glow to it, or a special power to it, or a special warmth to it. There's a famous expression, as Medavzich in Yiddish, one of the great masters said, One ought to listen to the stories that the candles are sharing. The flames are, are telling a story, they're sharing a story. One ought to listen to that story. And part of that story is, this Eir Haganus, the secret light. The question is, what does all of this mean? This is all, I was basically quoting what it says in various svarim. But what does this really mean? What is the meaning behind it? How do we apply it to our lives? What is the relevance of it? What does it mean practically in people's lives? We know 
that the whole concept of creating the Hanukkah miracle, commemorating the Hanukkah miracle through candles, is in itself novel. Because essentially, if you go through Jewish history, take for example the story of Pesach. Story of Pesach, what do we commemorate? The Jews were in slavery, they were subjugated, they were being slaughtered, they were being worked to their bone, their children were being drowned. Then came ten plagues, destroyed Egypt, brought Pari to his knees, and he emancipated the Jewish people, culminating in the crossing of the Red Sea, which caused the Egyptian troops to drown and the Jewish people finally to be saved. That's a pretty significant miracle, you would say. Take, it to, take the story of Purim. Haman planned almost successfully a holocaust against the Jewish people in which every single Jewish man, woman, and child would be wiped out and decimated in one day. And remember, Achashverosh was in full control of all communities and cities and countries and, and uh, regions where Jews lived, so there was no, nowhere to escape. There was no other government where Jews were. So every single Jew would have, Khalila been exterminated. And instead, what happens is Haman is hung on the gallows, and the reverse is, and the, and the decree, and the, and, and the king gives a new decree that the Jews can defend themselves. And Haman's ten children, ten sons, are hung on the gallows, and everything is transformed. Pretty powerful miracle. If you look at Hanukkah, what happened? There was a military victory of the Hashmanayim against the Syrian Greeks troops, which was an incredible, an incredible success story. Because naturally, based on the laws of military campaigns, they should have been, they should have been unsuccessful. It should have been a, a dismal and colossal failure. But they were not. They were successful. They, they were not defeated. They were successful, as we say in Alanism, The strong were conquered by the weak, and the many were defeated by the few. But the main celebration of Hanukkah was not for that. What happens after that? They want to light the menorah. They only have oil for one night. So they put the oil in for one night, and it burns for eight nights until they manage to bring new oil. Either they had to travel and squeeze olives and get new oil from Takua, it would take seven days, or they could make new oil, but everybody was impure, so the oil would become contaminated. It took seven days to purify themselves. It's two different explanations, but the bottom line is they wouldn't have lit the menorah for eight days, and now it lit, it lit for it was kindled for eight nights because they had enough oil. Now I want to ask you a question: Compare it to Pesach, compare it to uh, to Purim. How great is that miracle? Let's say it wouldn't have happened. Let's say the oil would have burned for one night, and the next night they wouldn't have oil. So what would have happened? Nothing, they wouldn't have lit the menorah for seven nights until they would bring new oil and they would start lining it. It would be a footnote. It would be a footnote in the story. The miracle, it's a beautiful miracle. It's a lovely miracle, but it doesn't seem very consequential. Yeah? You know, the, the, the Herschel Astropolo was a famous let. He was a poor man. He would go around collecting money and he was very, very funny. And the story is that he went to somebody and uh, the person said, again, you're coming? He says, listen, if you don't give me a nice nadava, yeah, I'm going to do what my father did. The guy was terrified. He gave him a nice contribution. He came to the next house. I need food. Go to the shul. If you don't give me, I'm going to do what my father did. And so he went to every house. Finally, somebody asked him, what did your father do? He said, my father went hungry. So I'll do what my father did. So what, you wanted to say something? You can ask. 
Either they would have you, either they would have not lit the menorah at all. They would have waited one more week. Listen, they weren't lighting the menorah for a while. It's not like they were lighting it. They weren't lighting it. The Greeks took over. They ransacked the base Hamikdash. They had Jews slaughter pigs to uh, to the to the to Zeus in the base Hamikdash. The whole place was violated and desecrated. They couldn't light the menorah, so they would have waited another week. You know, once you're trying to build your house, right, and renovations are going, if you ever dealt with a contractor, right, and you wait another week. It's nice to have a week earlier. It's not like if this miracle wouldn't have happened, history would have been changed, the Jews would have not been saved. In fact, the military victory seems much more significant. But the Chachamim didn't establish the commemoration based so much on the military victory. We're thankful for it, we're grateful for it, we mentioned it in Alanism, but the main celebration of Hanukkah is... Halal and the lighting of the candles, which again, it's a very beautiful, it's a geschmack, a miracle that it happened. But they could have either used contaminated oil, even if they wanted, didn't want to use contaminated oil. They could have because there's a halacha called tumahutra b'tzibur, which means when most of the community is impure, you're allowed to do the avoid in an impure fashion. Even if they didn't want to, so they would have waited another week for pure oil. Nonetheless, this miracle becomes the profound component, the profound expression of Hanukkah. Somehow the Chazal understood that this captures the essence of the holiday. And in fact, this is a concrete celebration that we do even more than for the military victory. So this is a big question about Hanukkah, and it's been discussed over the generations. And one way of explaining it has to do with this light that we're talking about, the Eir Haganu is the hidden light. What is this hidden light that the Chazal were talking about? And why was it created the first day? If it's anyway not going to be used, at least if you create it at the end, you don't want to use it. You, know, you create it at the beginning, so it's like almost the, the beginning of any, everything, the genesis, the root, the origin, the progenitor, and then Gonza, it's going into hiding. And remember, it wasn't hidden after there were people, after the generations, Hashem hid it. It was hidden right, right, right away the first day, Gonza. It was only available the first Shabbos of creation, and then again, it went back into hiding, so it wasn't even available for Adam afterwards, for Adam Arish. So the best explanation I ever got for this was from an email that a woman once sent me a number of years ago. This person who lives in Brooklyn, and uh, she once shared with me a story by email. She visited Israel, and she went to the Blind Museum in Tel Aviv. Anybody ever went there? It's a unique museum. It basically wants to give people an experience, a taste of what it is to live Khalila without eyesight. One can read about it, one can meet people, but what is the experience? So one goes on a museum, one goes, through the, one goes into this museum, and their only way of dealing with reality is by all the senses besides sight. And you know, we could think about it, we can imagine it, we can anticipate it, but until one experiences it, not only for five seconds, but for hours and hours, they can't really understand what it is. And then think about somebody who lives for decades in such a condition, or sometimes their entire life, if they were born without sight, Khalila. So this woman writes to me her experience. She was one of a group of six being led through the museum, and of course you have a guide who has to reassure you and comfort you and give you confidence and guide you. And this person who was the tour guide, she said he was incredible. He was just 
so interesting and so engaging. And she asked him about his background, and he said that he was born blind. And this is how he grew up, and this is what his whole life is, and that's why he's a guide at this museum. Who's who's better person to guide people in the blind museum? And she writes to me, she says, I never met such a person. First of all, his intelligence, his candidness, his vulnerability, his depth, his humor. She started to describe all the adjectives about him, his graciousness, the way he spoke to us, the way he spoke to every person, the way he shared with us about his life. He really opened me up to a new world and a new reality I never knew about. Anyway, we're going for hours following his lead. It was, she said, a transformative experience. The last part of the museum, you have to go into a store and buy buy things. Like one would go into a supermarket and buy things. But of course, you can't see the food. You can't see the packaging. You can't see the nature of the bananas and their quality. Everything has to be done through texture, your touching, and smell. And of course, one can use any other sense, but that's it, there's no sight. And you have to shop and figure out where everything is and what it is. And it was like, she never really understood. She she never could imagine such an experience. She finally, she got her food and then you sit down by a table and you eat. As they're sitting at the table, she says, at this point, I was so tense. I was just so tense from this whole experience. And he turns to me. And he says, why are you so nervous? Why are you so anxious? She's like, how in the world do you know that I'm tense and I'm anxious? It's not like you could see my face or you could see my body movement. So he said, some experiences in life, you don't need your physical eyes to see them. You could feel them. I feel your tension. I feel your anxiety. So she says, but other people usually don't. He says, well, when one skill is taken away, usually you're compensated with extra strengths in other skills. And he taught her how to calm down, <laughs> how to relax. And they spoke around the table, and he shared more of his life story. And then the lights go on. The tour is over. And she writes to me, I'm quoting almost verbatim, not verbatim, it's been a long time. She says, Rabbi Jacobson, I am embarrassed to tell you what happened next. But the lights went on, and I took a look at him. And for the first time, I could see him. And I realized how deformed he is physically, and I got nauseous. I got nauseous from looking at him. She described to me what his body looked like and his physique and his face. He didn't only, wasn't only lacking eyesight, he had a lot of other physical challenges in terms of his form and his body and his posture and his physique, his teeth and his cheeks and his tongue. It was just a very difficult thing, to, a very difficult face to look at. And she said, I had to avert my eyes and I was so ashamed of myself because throughout the journey, I was thinking what an incredible person this is and now I couldn't even look at him. And then she writes to me and then I realized, as long as my eyes were closed... I could see him. The moment my eyes opened up, I couldn't see him anymore. All I saw was external features. I didn't see the person anymore. As long as I wasn't looking with my eyes, I saw the person. Because my eyes were closed, it was pitch dark, I couldn't see. 
When I could see, I stopped seeing. All I saw was the most external layer of a person's reality. And it made me so nauseous and disgusted. And she shared with me this experience, and I guess, I don't know what she wanted exactly for me, but it was a very profound moment. And then I realized why at special moments in our lives we cover our eyes. When you say, Shema Yisrael, Shemalakein, Hashemachat, you cover your eyes. What's wrong with seeing? You light Shabbos candles, you cover your eyes. Other moments of deep intimacy and connection, sometimes people bless their children, they'll close their eyes. Why are you closing their eyes? Under a chuppah, the kala's eyes are eclipsed. What's wrong with seeing? Shouldn't you see what's happening? Everybody else is looking around. Rivka, when she meets Yitzchak that first moment, the badekinesh, vatikach hatsoyif, vatiskos. We don't want people to see. The idea, of course, is that there's two different types of seeing. Because there's two different types of light. One is what we call physical sight, which is one of the most incredible gifts in the world. The ability to see. The ability to see reality. And you probably know how many things have to happen in the eye in order to give us that physical ability to see. Today, when they build fighter jets with 4,000 cameras, they try to replicate the human eye, and it still doesn't even come close. You're talking about millions and millions of optic nerves that have to converge in the womb of the mother to be able to develop the eye, such a sophisticated, dazzlingly brilliant mechanism like the eye is it's unheard of, it's unprecedented. The greatest engineers today can't come even close to replicating it despite the major advancements, advancements in human technology. And that's just the eye of a person. So the eye is literally, you know, and we make a blessing every day. The fact that I can open my eyes and perceive and behold reality. Yet, those eyes as amazing as they are, sometimes have access only to the light that allows me to see physical reality. What is the Urshan Nivra B'yayim Rishon? The light that was created the first day is not just the light that allows me to perceive reality from an external perspective. It allows me to perceive the inner meaning of reality, the depth of reality, that which is on the inside, not only that which is on the outside. Because a person could live in two different worlds. I could live in a world where the external becomes a manifestation of the internal, or I could live in a world where there's a gulf, there's a split, there's a dichotomy between the two. One said from a rabbi, a couple came to him, and uh, the woman was complaining that he's not there for her, that that he's not there for her. And the husband said, I don't know what she wants. I take out the garbage, I clean the Shabbos table, I do as many chores as I can. Whenever there's a problem in the house, I fix it. I clean up at this point. And her response was, I didn't marry a handyman. What was the argument? (laughs) What was the debate here? What didn't he understand? Imagine if a husband and a wife, they're married, and she asks him to do something, he asks her to do something, or the the other way around, and he takes the ksuva, and he starts reading, he says, sorry, this is not in the contract. I don't have to do it, it's not in the contract. And he says, I'm just following the obligations. 
I'm doing everything technically that I'm obligated to do. What's missing? What's missing is, what's missing is the light. <laughs> what's missing is the oil, the inner energy, the inner connection that can't be articulated in a document. I can write out in a document all the obligations, but I can't put in as an obligation what's called emotional intimacy, emotional connection, deep loyalty and trust, not because you could talk about it, but it's not something that's expressed itself in one action or another action. It's expressed itself in all actions or it's not expressed in any action. What's the What was that light that Hashem created? Why was it the first thing? The reason it's the first thing is because the is simply the ability to be able to perceive the full reality of everything as is, without blockages, without cover-ups. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as is, which is a manifestation of the infinite. Because everything in the world is really the divine energy that animates it, that creates it every single moment. Just as we know, if we had microscopic eyes, so to speak, every reality would appear differently. Because when you look at something through a microscope, the same reality appears to you, but with much more nuance and depth. We, Our eyes turn matter into what matter looks like. But if you use a microscope, suddenly you learn that what seems like a lifeless stender or a lifeless piece of wood or a cup or a pen or anything in the world is really a pulsating universe with millions and billions and trillions and zillions and sectillions. You know how many atoms are in one droplet of water and each atom is made up of subatomic particles and each atom is made up of the nucleus of the atom and the electrons revolving around the center of the atom with incredible speed, and each atom has to be operating in a perfect harmonious way, and then converging with other atoms that together make up molecules that together turn into the matter, but our eyes don't perceive that layer of reality, not because it doesn't exist. It exists, and in fact it's much more real than what we see. One of the most fascinating facts about our world is that 99.9% of each atom is empty space. That means, think about this, if you take all the matter of our planet, all the physical matter of our planet, it could fit into a suitcase. The whole gashmius of this world can fit into a suitcase. It's not an exaggeration. It's the true reality. So you say, what are you talking about? My eyes don't say that. My eyes can't deal with such small entities. So my eyes take the empty space and eliminate it. And it turns into a stender. I don't even see empty space here. When your eyes are trained to develop in deeper ways, the same reality you perceive in a different way. It's not that it's a different world, it's the same world. The question is what I see in the world. If I open up a piano book and I see, so one person sees just black lines, what you call musical notes, they don't know how to read notes. Another person starts smiling and they start humming the tune. They both saw the same reality. But one person sees Within those notes, they perceive the music. They can start hearing the music. The same is true when an architect walks into a home. What does the architect see? So in every reality, there's the Eir 
the deeper layers of reality which are there. The question is, what kalim, what containers do I have? What does my retina grasp? You know, there are colors that none of us perceive. Birds perceive them. Not because the colors don't exist. There are sounds that I can't hear. Dogs can hear them. Not because those sounds don't exist, but because simply the frequencies are one that will not be detected by the retina of my eye and interpreted by my brain. So what do I do? I say it doesn't exist. So what's the definition of existence by me? The definition of existence is that which is compressed and compacted and defined in a way that my brain can interpret it and access it and give it meaning. That's called existence. What if it's something that I don't have the kalim for its existence? I don't have the containers to detect it. What do I say? It doesn't exist. For thousands of years, nobody thought there's something called a virus. Right? But we know viruses exist, unfortunately. Nobody knew there's such a thing as a virus. Nobody knew there's germs. Nobody knew there's bacteria. Nobody knew there's a cell. Nobody knew there's atoms. Nobody knew that there are genes. Do genes not exist? Somebody once asked me, a teenager was kidding me, and he said, you know, for me to believe things, I have to see them. If I don't see them, I don't believe them. I said, let me tell you where science is holding in 2021. Okay? Here's how it works. I'm talking about from a secular perspective. In science, we know something that you see probably doesn't really exist. (laughs) existence begins on levels where you don't see, right? Genes, DNA molecules exist. You'll never see them. Cells exist. You will not see them. Electrons exist. You will not see it. See them. Nuclear energy exists. You will not see it with your eyes. Germs exist. Fungus exists. Bacteria exist. Viruses exist. Infections exist. But I can't see them. The fact that you don't see them is because they really exist. What I see with my eyes is basically a very condensed, limited form of existence that allows itself to be detected, perceived, and interpreted by my eye and my brain, which is amazing. And as long as we all agree on it, we could do business with it. What makes red, red, and blue, blue? What makes really red, red, and blue, blue is that the light frequencies that are emitted from that particular object are interpreted by my brain and your brain as blue. But the fact that most of our brains interpret it that way, you could sell a blue carpet, you could sell a blue couch, call it blue. If my eyes were expansive, if they had deeper layers, different animals, different birds, different mammals, have different chushim, sometimes slight, sometimes dramatic, they see a different world, they live in a different world. Physicists ask a question, if a tree falls down in the forest and nobody is there to hear it, does it still make a noise? Does it still make a sound? And the answer is, of course it doesn't. The definition of a sound that the tree makes is, my ears access reality in a particular way. There are even physicists who argue, I don't want to get too carried away, that when you leave your house and nobody is there, your house is not there anymore. I wish I could explain it to the electric company and to the gas company and to the insurance company. Somehow they don't agree with this idea in physics. Okay, they think the house still exists and they still charge me for a lot of things. (laughs) And the bank still charges for a mortgage. I tried to explain to them, physics says the house does not exist. What are you charging me for? Garnish? I in the Ephes? It's funny, but it's really a very profound truth. What makes something exist is that my eyes, my brain says that it exists. In Tanya it says that if our eyes, if our eyes 
had permission to see. What does it mean permission? If our eyes were microscopic, when we would look at the physical world, we would see spiritual divine energy everywhere. Not that the physical is not true. The physical is simply a concrete manifestation of divine energy. The way my eye interprets divine energy can't interpret divine energy. So it says, this is a book, this is a shtender, this is a phone, this is a mind. What is it really? It's really a lakus. It's really divinity. Here is an example of this. It's a story about Rebaruchel of Mezhebush. Rebaruchel of Mezhebush was a grandson of the Baal Shem Tev, the holy, the Rebbe Rebaruchel they called he once went to a city called Zhitomir. Zhitomir is a city in Ukraine. In Zhitomir they lived Reb Zvolf of Zhitomir, Reb Zvolf of Zhitomir, and he wrote a sefer called Oyr Hameir, the light that shines. He was also very into Hanukkah and the lights of Hanukkah, Oyr Hameir. He already passed away, but his widow was still living in Zhitomir. Reb Baruchel of Mezhebush wanted to visit his widow. Reb Zeyvolv Jatami's widow. On the way to her home, he met a Jew in the street. And he tells the Gabbai, this, this person is special. The Gabbai whispers, they actually say as the Ghana from Shtetl. In every Shtetl had a Ghana, which had a Ghana thief. He says, no, he's special. He says, Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, Rebbe. And Reb Baruch HaMajabur says, by any chance, do you have a son who needs a shidduch? He says, yeah. Rebaruch says, and I have a daughter who wants a shidduch. And I think it would be an incredible opportunity. And the man says, it would be the biggest chus in the world. So Rebaruch says, let's go right to Noyim. Let's go right to Noyim. Rumor had it. And people came over to Rebaruch They just said, you should know that this guy you don't want to do a shidduch with. He's the thief of the shtetl. He's Pashtaganov. In fact, a few years ago, something happened. There was a rule in Jatomir, the governor, the mayor of Jatomir, had a rule if somebody steals, they humiliate him publicly. This guy, a few years ago, they caught him, he stole from another family. What do they do? They put you on a wagon, they tied you to the back, they put you in the back of the wagon, and they led you through the whole city, and the children would throw rocks and embarrass, and everybody would scream, Ganev, 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 the Gentiles, the Jews. This was the guy. Rebarachal says, This Ganev is good for my daughter. This Ganev's son is good for my daughter. Okay, people were a little stray, you know, this is what you're going to subject your daughter to. So family could be very problematic. He goes to the widow of the Erham Meir. He walks in, and she says, Mazel tov, I heard you did a Gavaldi Keshidach. He says, you're the only one in this town who thinks I did a Gavaldik Shidduch? Most people are chastising me. How do you know it's such a Gavaldik Shidduch? So she said, let me tell you what happened a number of years ago. I was sitting with my husband, the Erham Meir, by the window. And this Jew, your daughter's future father-in-law, Yemechutten, was being schlepped in a wagon and everybody was screaming, thief, the police were screaming, thief, thief, embarrassing him. And my husband, Reb Wolf of Zhitomer, who was a student of the Balshamtev and the Magad, was sitting by the window, and he turns to me and he said, he's not the thief. <laughs> I see, he's not the thief. What do you mean? He said, I'll tell you what happened. There was a poor Jew who stole. And that Jew was caught. And he knew that that Jew will not survive the humiliation. Whoops. So what did he do? So he told his Jew, I'll go instead of you. 
I'll be fine. My confidence is very deep. I know who I am. It's not going to be easy, but I'll spare you. Jeremiah says, I see. I see the light on his face. I see right away as Nishtaganov. So his wife says, how is anybody ever going to know the truth? He says, whoever has to know the truth will know the truth. But here's a simon. In a few years, a big tzaddik will come to this town. And he's going to make a shidduch with this person. And you'll see that he also sees what I see. That was the Eir HaMeir. So she says, that's why I know that you did a good shidduch, a big mazel tov. This ability to be able to see through layers of reality, that's connected to the Eir HaGonos. That's seeing something for what it really is. Not for what I think it is. Not for what my limited tools say that it is. But it's true manifestation from the divine. It's not just a physical difference. There's also the physical differences. The Baal Shem Tev could see things that other people didn't see. I'll give you another example. It happened in our generation. I was once walking on Eastern Parkway with my son a couple of few years ago. And I met a Jew. His name was Rabbi Benjamin Klein of blessed memory. He was a secretary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he seemed like in a good mood. Usually the secretaries are not supposed to speak. But it was... So I said, Tell me a story. So he tells me, I'll tell you something that I experienced a few days ago. And this is the story that he told me. He said there was a young man who was married in Bnei Brak, and they were married for 10 years. And they couldn't have children. They tried everything and didn't have children. They had a very good marriage, a good relationship. But they couldn't have children. And after 10 years, based on the halacha, that 10 years of marriage, there's room for divorce. Some say it's a mitzvah. Some say you could, you're allowed to. So with the advice of, I guess, people he consulted, and with tears in his eyes and in her eyes, they got divorced. He wanted to have a child. Do the mitzvah of pruervu. Now, <laughs> you know, there are tragedies and there are tragedies. Two months after the divorce... She starts showing. She's pregnant. Ten years they didn't have a baby. Everybody gave up hope. They got divorced. And she was pregnant. She's pregnant. They could get married again. He was a Kayan. Kayan, of course, can't marry a divorcee. So now the tragedy is a double tragedy. She's going to have a baby. It's his baby, her baby. And they won't even be able to raise it together. The whole reason they got divorced is no children, and now there's going to be a child, but they're divorced. He went to a lot of great people, including his own teacher, who was a very known person, to ask for what can I do? And everybody said, there's nothing. This is a tragic, tragic, sad story. There's nothing to do. There was somebody who told him that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he should go, should go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There was a big paisik in Israel. He said, if there's somebody who cannot, he says, what is he supposed to do? Just go. You won't be able, you won't lose. So he went. Rabbi Benjamin Klein told me the story. He was there. Now this person came from a particular yeshiva where there was a lot of opposition to Chabad. So he really didn't want to do it. But his wife, his ex-wife, pushed him. She said, there's nothing to lose. Go. So he came one Sunday. The Lubavitcher would give dollars. But he was very cynical. He came by with a friend. And he told the Rebbe the story in brief. He's a Kayan, he was married for 10 years, he got divorced, she's pregnant. So without skipping a heartbeat, he says, 
Go discuss this with your mother. He left, and he says, <laughs> How is my mother going to help this situation? Go talk to my mother. His mother was actually living in Brooklyn, I think in Flatbush, she told me. She was an elderly woman. She also had a little dementia. He didn't tell her the whole story. He didn't want to aggravate his mother. She was an elderly woman, and she was already not fully clear always. So he says, <laughs> we're going to sit with my mother and now wait for a lucid moment and then make her cry about my fate and what happened there and we got divorced. It's ridiculous. This person he went with told him, you came to America from B'nai Brak. You talk to your mother. Did ever talk to your mother? So he goes to his mother and he sits down and he says, I was by the Lubavitcher Rebbe today. He tells the whole story and he says, the Rebbe said, I should come speak to you. So his mother starts shaking and she becomes pale. And she said, no, if he knows, if he knows, I guess we can break the oath. He says, what oath? So she tells him, my Ningala, you're not really my child. We adopted you straight from birth. But we made a vow. My husband, we wanted you to have a good life. And we knew the, the family we adopted you from, it was a very, very difficult situation. There's not going to be any hope. You won't, you, we won't be able to meet anybody. I don't know what happened over there. So it was a very complicated situation. So we made a vow we're never going to tell you. So you'll grow up, functional home, thinking we're your biological parents. This was the way we dealt with it. You're not a Kayan. My husband was a Kayan. You're not a Kayan. No. So Rabbi Klein says he was there when it happened. He didn't know the end of the story. He knew that the person came to the episode to speak to his mother. He tells me a few days ago, he went to the oil of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he sees a younger man there with a son. What's this? Ba mitzvah. He was a Litvish Jew from Bnei Brak. He says, This boy is my ba mitzvah bacher. And I had a schus to raise him as a father because of what happened when I came then to the Rebbe and he told me to speak. So I came here with my son before his ba mitzvah to the Rebbe's tzian in Queens to say thank you. So uh, I asked, uh, I asked uh, Rabbi Klein, via the Rebbe Gevust, So he didn't like the question, of course. <laughs> so he told me, There are people that could see. That was a good answer. It's called Oyr HaMeyer, Oyr HaGonos. What does it mean, the ability to see? So obviously there's different levels. But the concept in all of it is, there's a certain light that is always present. The question is, what are the tools that I'm employing to perceive reality? If I work through my tools and my tools become conduits for transcendence, so the doors of perception are cleansed more and more and more and more. And sometimes all the doors of perception are cleansed. That's already different levels of seeing. So the Eir looks at this Jew, he says, the whole world might say he's a Ganev. I know he's Nishken Ganev. It's irrelevant to what the world says. Everybody could say something about somebody or not say. It's completely irrelevant. If you see, you see. It's not about how many votes there are. This is not something you're going to get votes for because all the votes are coming from people who are blinded. The whole masses could say something about a certain reality. Reality. 
Nobody knew what's happening in the physical. Everybody thought physical reality is physical reality. A few thousand years later with new tools, we see a whole new reality. So you can say, but millions of people believed otherwise. Of course. This is not an issue of logic where you say, let's go according to most opinions. It's the question, what tools do you have to be perceive reality? This is what this woman was saying about the Museum of Tel Aviv that she experienced. That tragically, when my eyes are open, I sometimes lose my sight, my vision. Helen Keller, who of course could not see, once said the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. What did that mean? She understood this. She understood this better than most people. There's eyesight, which is the greatest blessing in the world. But the only thing that's worse than not having that is lacking vision. Somebody once came home from a walk, came back from a walk in the forest, and Helen Keller asked her, where are you coming from? So she said, I'm coming from the forest. I went on a walk. She said, how was it? She said, nothing. It was uneventful. So Helen Keller <laughs> communicated that. She used to she said, I don't understand how somebody could come back from a walk in the forest and say that it's uneventful. You saw the colors. You felt the texture. You felt the sway of the leaves. You saw nature. How could you say it was uneventful? I can have eyesight, but not see. I see only the chitzonius. I see only the externality, not the pneumius. When Hashem, Hashem hid the Ur Haganus, He hid this light. What does it mean He hid the light? And where did He hide it? He hid it in Torah. Don't create it and hide it. The point is that we live in a world where one needs to create the ability within themselves to open their eyes and see this light. It's hidden. But all of life is about the human being's partnership with Hashem in building a world of light. So the first thing he says is, the purpose of creation was, let there be light before everything else. Because before you create something, you first have to have a mission statement. You don't create a company or an organization or a website or a school or a family without having a mission statement. What do you want to accomplish? That's the first thing. So the first thing is he articulated the mission statement. The mission statement is, let there be light. And there was light. That the function of the human being over the generations is going to be to be able to fill the world with light. To be able to open my eyes and help other people open their eyes. To be able to perceive the underlying unity and divinity and holiness that is embedded at the core of every atom, every cell, every tiny piece of matter, every creation, every existence, which is what we say is Ein Oid Mulvada. There's nothing outside of a divine flow of energy. So now comes Hanukkah. If you look at Hanukkah, what happens is the story of Hanukkah was a story in which Jewish history was already experiencing a major decline. Alexander, the second Beis HaMikdash did not have the miracles of the first Beis HaMikdash. Alexander the Great was still kind to the Jews, but once he died and the Greek Empire split up, and generations later comes an Antiochus, and now suddenly Jewish existence is experiencing extraordinary upheavals. The Hashmanayim fight a guerrilla war for years. And the guerrilla war was successful. But it's not like after this war everything was good. For 25 years the wars went on. 
And when the Hashmonayim finally got independence, it didn't last long. Ultimately, the Romans took over another 100 years later, and they ultimately destroyed everything. And furthermore, even the Hashmonayim itself, the family, the original Hashmonayim were great people, but their children and the grandchildren fought bloody civil wars. There was infighting, and there was a terrible... It wasn't an easy era. It was an era of a lot of concealment. What did the oil show the Chazal? What did it show them? You say, what would have happened if the Menorah wouldn't have burnt for eight days? What it showed them was that there was something, there was a light here that was present within the story. There was an Ur HaGonos, the presence of Hashem, within the entire story that could never be extinguished. Chazal say on the Pasuk, the beginning of creation, Chayshech refers to Malchus Yavan The Yavanim darkened the eyes of the Jewish people. They told the Jews right on the Karen Asher and the horn of an axe, they don't have a Chelek Alekei Yisrael. Karen also means Karan, light. Karan Karan in Hebrew is rays of light, are called Karnayim. They wanted to darken the eyes. What do you mean darken the eyes? Why did the Chazal use that expression? Darken the eyes doesn't mean you shouldn't see physically. It means you should have eyesight. The Greeks loved physical prowess and, and competence and ability. But you should lack vision, inner vision, spiritual vision. Vision sometimes that I can only have if I close my eyes. If I don't get distracted by the external stimuli because I'm not yet in a world where there's a seamless flow between the inner and the outer. Sometimes the more I close my eyes, the more I see. The more I open my eyes, the less I see. We all know it. There's certain people you get an impression from. Let's say you read about them, or you read them, or you have correspondence with them, and then you meet them in person and you see them. Everything changes. <laughs> what is it? Who's, which one is right? The former or the latter? You have to know. It's not so posh it. Sometimes when my eyes are wide open physically, my spiritual eyes are completely closed. I don't see. I get so distracted by certain things that trigger me because of my own issues. And sometimes when I close my eyes, I actually go into a deeper space in myself and I could see much more of you. So it's like a very interesting paradox. Somebody wrote me once, he said, when a person opens his physical eyes, he sees what's in front of him. If you want to see something far away, what do you do? You squint your eyes. You almost close them. Why? Now you should open your eyes, because by closing my eyes to that which is right before me, I'm able to see much further and much deeper. I could sometimes see potential which is not actualized. The sun sheds light on that which we see. The Hanukkah lights show us that which we long for, that which lay in our potential. I was saying Haneris Halolo the first night, and as I was saying it, I know, a thought came in. I don't know if I once heard it from somebody, it's possible, or it was just a thought that came in. We said, We say, All these eight days of Hanukkah, Haneris Halolo Kodeshheim. These are holy flames. We have no right to use them for our benefit, to manipulate them, even in a good way. I want to sew, I want to cook, I want to count money, as the Gemara says, I don't have rishus. Only to see them. Why do we say that in Aner Salalu? It's a halacha. So it's in Shulchan Aruch. 
like any other halacha. When I get up and I make Kiddush Friday night, and I say, well, on Shabbos, I'm not allowed to cook, I'm not allowed to light, yeah, go learn Elche Shabbos and find out. You have to put a blech on the stove. You don't say that in the Kiddush Friday night. Go learn the laws of Shabbos. So there's laws of Hanukkah. Why in Haneri Salalo? I'm thanking Hashem for the miracle. By the way, let me teach you halachas. Go learn the halachas. Obviously, this is part of the message of Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from the word chinuch. Chinuch means education. That's why there's a special focus on Hanukkah with children and education. The Chol Shmoines Yemei Hanukkah Elu is not just the eight days of Hanukkah. It's also those that we educate, which are our children, our children, our grandchildren, our students, our disciples. So he says, The Chol Shmoines Yemei Hanukkah, Haneris Halalu, these flames. The Pasuk says, Neir Hashem Nishmas Adam. The flame represents the neshama of a person. Shleim HaMelech says in Mishle. Neir Hashem Nishmas Adam, Choyfez Kol Chadrei Vatan. The soul of Hashem is the, 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 the flame of Hashem is the soul of a person which sees, which searches all the inner chambers of the womb. Chafesh also, this Fasem says, comes from the word Chafshi, Chafesh. It liberates all the secrets of the womb. It takes out all the secrets. So, Vachol Shmaina Simei Chanaka. Haneris Halalu, these flames, these Neshamas, Kaidashem. We come to realize how holy they are. We have no right to use our children. The only permission that God gave us was to see them for who they really are. That's the parent. My children were not given to me for me to be able to use for my psychological, emotional, and forgive me, even spiritual benefit. In order, so I should be able to say, I'm a successful father. Ichab nachas. <laughs> I'm a successful mother. I'm good. Therefore, I have children. You missed the point. So what were they given to me? Liroisan bilvat. God gave them to you for you to be able to see them for who they really are. That's the deepest and greatest thing that a parent can give a child. Help them see themselves for who they really are by modeling to them how you see them. If it's lehishtamish behen, I'm going to use your light, then I'm missing the point. Liroison, that's the way of giving for you. They're kodesh, but can I see it? Can I really, really see it in every child? Can I really see it? And you know what happens then? Then every child will cause you to say thank you to Hashem. Sometimes people say, for this child, I say thank you. For this child, I take pills. For this child, I say thank you. For this child, you can attribute my migraines. For this child, I'm like, ah, I can't thank you enough, God. For this child, that's where my anxiety comes from. That's why I'm anxious. But when you learn that a child is not not for me to use, God says, I gave them to you so because children need somebody who sees them, who really sees them, not just their outsides, but also their inside. When the outside is splendid and perfect, then everybody could see it. Then I don't need a parrot. But sometimes when the world points and says, I don't see anything, I don't see anything. <laughs> That's when you need to be able to see it. Then you need the Eir Haganos. Then you need the light of Sunday. The first light, the light that allows you to see It's not just from the end of the world to the other end of the world. The word oilam comes from helam, concealment. 
It's the light that allows you to see from one end of concealment through the other end of concealment. It allows you to pierce through the oilam, oilam helam, pierce through the concealments, the layers. Sometimes I have to close my eyes for that. To be able to go deeper into myself and not get distracted with what my physical eyes say. This is garbage. This is damaged. They tell the story about Thomas Edison. That one day he was thrown out of school. He was eight years old. And the teacher and principal expelled him from school. And they gave him a note in an envelope to give his mother. And he comes home. He says, I was expelled from school. And here's the note. And she opens the envelope. And she reads it to him. And she says, Thomas, the principal wrote here, your son is a genius. We simply don't have the tools to educate him. He is beyond us. Please, you or your husband or find people who can bring out his potential because we simply don't have the skills to do it. And he'll change the world. And Thomas is like, wow. (laughs) And she starts teaching him. And she turns him into an Edison for whom we could still thank for nightlife. (laughs) For Hanukkah nightlife. We all have light. After his mother's funeral... He went to clean up her home, and in the closet he found the letter sent by the principal when he was eight years old. And he opened the letter, and the letter wrote, said as follows, Your son Thomas, this is an old English word that's not used anymore. Your son Thomas is addled. But he knows what addled means. Huh? Retarded. They don't use the word anymore. Addled. Addled. Addled Addled means he's, he's not with it. He's underdeveloped. Please do not bring him back to this school again. And Edison looked at this and he said, In my mother's genius and depth, she turned an adult child into a glorious child. For that, she had to have deeper eyes. If she would have read the note, the note said adult. She wasn't lying. She actually read the note, but she saw beyond. She wasn't lying. She didn't make up a new note. She was actually explaining to the principal what he wanted to say, but he didn't know how to say it. Huh? She translated it for him. In his mind, this kid is adult. It's true. Those are his tools. You don't fit into this box. You're adult. She said, let me just explain to you what it means. It means you don't have the kalim to see this child. I do. So let me tell you what this true this child is. And she, by seeing that in him, he could see it in himself. Somebody sent me a clip the other day. He was sitting in sixth grade, and he would look out the window. In, in, in Yiddish, they used to call it a gecholem tagansen talk. They dreamt all day. He was looking out the window. And the teacher tells him, he's sixth grade. He says, by looking out the window all day, you're going to accomplish nothing. Nobody is ever going to pay you a salary for looking out the window all day. You need to study. You need to learn. He says, today, I'm a pilot. (laughs) I get paid for looking out the window all day. (laughs) That's what they pay me for. And I love it. Was the teacher right? From his perspective, I'm giving a class, right? You're looking out the window. You're a failure. But some people need to look out the window. They don't belong within a room. They belong in the air. What do the headlines say? The heavens is our home, right? 
Some people, they live, they live outdoors. They can't be confined. I once heard a lecture from somebody. This is so, so, so simple and so profound. He said he had this instinct, this proclivity in class. Already first grade, second grade. He would drum, bang on the table, and it drove everybody crazy for good reason. The teacher and all the students. He said he would get expelled every single day. Go to the principal's office until you could calm down. They tried to help. They were nice. Finally, one day, the principal calls him in and says, listen, this can't go on. If you want to be in a classroom, you can't just do this a whole day. It's not working. So he says, what should I do? He says, take both of your hands and sit on them. Just sit on them, right? Great advice. So he did it, and it lasted for like 45 seconds. You know, sit on your hands all day, right? For seven hours. 45 seconds, and then... And finally... They just couldn't deal with him. Anyways, a new year, a new teacher. <laughs> and of course, the first day he tries to behave. You know, the second day I clapped. And the teacher looks at him and says, you stay here after class. And he's like, oh my God. <laughs> What's going to happen? And he sat at the class. What's going on? And he says, I've been doing this for years. Okay, I hear you. Next day again, try. He can't. After a few weeks, the teacher says, okay. Tonight, after everybody is home, you have to stay. i got to talk to you. He said, okay, the guy also lost his patience. He's going to expel me. When everybody left, the teacher goes to his drawer. He opens it up. And he, he bought for him this beautiful drum set. A big drum set. Not in the drawer. He had it st- stored away. And he said, you don't have a problem. <laughs> You're just a drummer. <laughs> you are a drummer. Here is a drum set. And today... He's actually a world-renowned drummer. I heard him give it. He's a world, he travels the world. And he says, because of that second or third grade teacher, who instead of calling me a failure, he called me a drummer. He understood. This is all a deeper light, and it exists on every level, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. In my childhood, there was a boy a man who would come from Israel to Brooklyn and he had a terrible illness and he was completely deformed. Very sweet man. His name was Avraham. But as a child, I'm about a five-year-old kid. I would walk with my mother on Kingston Avenue and I would see him. I would cross. I would run. I'm not going to get graphic here, but he was terribly deformed. His entire face was deformed. His cheeks were inflated. It looked like he was just burnt. His, his flam fire, his face was burning red. And I, I would always cross him. My mother had to calm me down. Later, when I got older and I met him, he was a really sweet guy. But then as a kid, it was very, very scary. And the fascinating thing, I grew up in Crown Heights, and the Rebbe Lubavitcher would have a min chevi day with the oil. And by Chazar he would sit at the bench, facing the crowd, and he was like this. His hand was on his forehead, a whole davening. The whole Chazar Sashat's like this every single day, no exception. One time, the Rebbe sat down for Mincha, and his hand, he didn't put his hand on the forehead. Okay, nobody, but the second, the next day also not. The next day, yeah, on and off. It was very strange, because the Rebbe was very consistent every day. For decades, he would sit down, he, was like, he would look in the Siddur with his hand on his forehead. And nobody could figure out why, what, what was happening. And then one Bacha figured it out. And they realized that when this guy was davening in Mincha in the shul, the Rebbe would not have his hand on his forehead. And they understood why. So that nobody should think that he doesn't want to look at him. He's going like this because he doesn't want to look at him. Even though he was blind, so he wouldn't have known. But somebody might think 
that he doesn't want to look at him. So whenever he was there, he changed his custom. He had his hand down. I'm not sure about this, but it seemed to be quite the likely reason. Sometimes I can get so distracted by externalities, whatever those externalities look like. The Ur Haganos is everything in this world is light. If I can't see it, it's because my tools are limited. Every child is infinite light. Every person is infinite light. Sometimes the light is very deep. It's hidden. It's hidden because I don't have access to it. But everything is light. That's the light of Yom Rishon. The light of Yom Rishon is the essence of all creation. The essence of all creation is divine light. The question is, how much will I access it? How deeply will I live with it? And how much it could become part of me? And the only way that can happen is if I discover that light inside of me. So if I discover that light inside of me, then that light allows me to see that light everywhere. It allows me to see the light in you. And that ability is always to perceive the underlying reality. And it's true even in Hanukkah as well. There was a slonomer Rebbe, Rebbe Avramelah, Rebbe Avramelah slonomer. And uh, it's a very powerful story. It was Friday afternoon. You know, Friday afternoon, Hanukkah, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say anxiety, but pressure. Huh? It's a short day. It's a short day. And as, as prepared as you are, you're never prepared, right? So you light the candles, there's Hanukkah candles, Shabbos candles, but left in Shul, Celebedic. And you left the latkes to fry, you don't want them to burn. It is usually, it's Lebedic and Freilich, right? And the one who was supposed to bring the wine forgot to bring the wine, so there's no wine, there's no challah. Your neighbor also doesn't have wine, whatever. One of those days. It's for noch besser, noch besser, okay? So Rebbe Vlamil Aslaname, he was very into lighting candles, and they prepared the menorah, and it was right before Shabbos, he would light, his wife would light, Shabbos candle, they would start Shabbos. Pung then, then you know, you'd make the wicks, uh, like some of you still do, with cotton, it took a long time. <laughs> Didn't just buy ready-made stuff. A child, his baby child, was actually murdered in the Holocaust, ran and tipped over the table, and a whole menorah went flying down the oil, the wicks, he took and he realized that to get it back ready to light for Shabbos, it's not going to happen. His wife had to light Shabbos candles or Shabbos. He didn't light Hanukkah candles. And he said these words, The Zelber Eberste, was had geheisen sind in Hanukkah licht, had euch geheisen, misolnischt, in Kaas werden auf de Kind. The same God who wants you to told you to light Hanukkah candles also told you you shouldn't explode in rage on your child. Now this can be a little misconstrued. Some people understand this as an invitation for emotional repression. But he's not saying that. He felt the pain of not lighting the candles. He felt the pain. He felt it in his body. He felt it in his soul. Not getting angry at his child and smacking him up and screaming at him didn't mean he wasn't pain by the fact that he couldn't light Hanukkah candles. It means he felt it, and now he asked the question, is lighting candles about lighting candles, or is it about a relationship with God? If it's about a relationship with Hashem, now Hashem wants me not to explode in rage. The Zelba God. We often don't realize it because I surrender to the external facade of it, and not to the inner light, not to the inner primis. 
It's a very different concept when you tune into the pnimius of the mitzvah. Of course I want to light the candles. But he tipped over the menorah. So what happens now? Do I lose everything? Some people, they don't worship God. They worship the religion. I didn't light the menorah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you destroyed my Hanukkah. You destroyed my Hanukkah. I'm going to destroy you. What's that about? That's about me getting stuck in a very external facade. It's really a form of very external relationship with truth. The flexibility of understanding that life is in flux, like a flame. It's always in flux. And the question is, what's the opportunity right now? What's the light, the opportunity, the message that I want to be able to see right now in my life? So when we say that Hanukkah represents the Er Haganos, the hidden light, what does this mean in a person's life? It means that when I'm looking at the flames, and when I light the flames, it's a unique divine gift and a divine power to be able to open myself up to more vision, to open myself up to see things in a more authentic, pure fashion, not to judge life from externalities. Sometimes a person looks at their family, for example. It's not the family you dreamt of. It's not the Hanukkah. I was in a house, and uh, so somebody tells me that, you know, sometimes you ever see they make these... Uh, these uh, ads, so they have a beautiful family sitting around the Shabbos table, you know, a husband and a wife, everybody's dressed to kill, and like eight kids sitting in their place, and the table is beautiful. So it says, why does my house never look like this? I said, because this is for the pictures. So sometimes externally, I want it to look a certain way so that it should look good. I'm not only talking about look good to others, even look good to me. But there's a deeper light. To be able to see what is, and to be able to look at the pnimius of that, and then you'll see that 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 oil that seemed so impoverished, it only had enough to light for one night, it has much more power than you imagine. It has much more infinity than you imagine. That miracle showed the chashmenayim, the depth of what the victory was. It wasn't just that they had mazel. It was that the inner light which Yiddishkeit tried to bring to the world, was still alive, it was still vibrant, and it was still well. And in every situation I have that choice, to look at the external light, or to look at the Eir Haganos, that pierces through the oil. In every single situation that comes up, I could just look at what is externally, and often get so flustered, and overwhelmed, and startled, and surrender to, to rage, and, and despair, which are normal experiences. And one has to respect those and have compassion for those. But then make a choice and say, I don't want to use you. I want to see you. I don't want to use my child. I don't want to use any child. I want to just be able to That's why God gave them to me. That's why Hashem gave them to you. To be able to really see a person for who they really are. If you can do that, if I can do that, I become a blessing in this person's life. I simply could see, let help them see themselves for who they really are because I could see them for who they really are. Now I have to say that this is not so easy always because I have to emancipate myself. Like that woman wrote, I had to close my eyes in order to be able to open my eyes. Sometimes we have to do that. It's nicer if you don't, but sometimes I have to close my eyes 
in order to be able to open my eyes. I have to close my eyes. I have to say, don't allow my brain to get distracted with chitzayinius. Allow me to see, to see on neshama. I'm going to conclude with this story. It always touched me. There was a yid. He was a big veer. He was a merchant. He was a diamond connoisseur. His name was Rebmanye Mazenson. And he was a, a, a Talmud, a student of the fifth Chabad Rebbe known as the Rebbe Rashab. And every year he would come for Yom Tif, And he would bring him a beautiful diamond as a gift to be able to give each... The Rebbe should have to give for Tzedakah for whatever causes he wanted. Because it was his most expensive diamond. Like this was his Tzedakah. He would give it every year to the Rebbe to use for his charities. One year he came and he was a Hashem person. He was a Talmud Chachem and he was a Baal Tzedakah. He was just a very affluent and renowned and dignified and respectable person. And he was waiting online to go in on Yechidus to go into the Rebbe. And in front of him was a simple Jew. No one. And that simple Jew, and then he spent a lot of time with the Rashab, with the Rebbe Rashab. And then came his turn before Yom Tif, and he was there only for a few minutes. And he felt very slighted. Because Mela, the Rebbe doesn't have time, there's a lot of people, but this person who's far simpler and less literate and less accomplished, he gave so much time. So he had this grudge inside of him. He didn't say anything, but he had, you know... <laughs> he, he felt... He felt... Yeah, he, he, could, it was, he was just upset. After Yom Tif, he came in with his diamonds, and he said, this year, this year, Rebbe, have the best and the chance have the best. He puts down the diamonds, and he points to one of them, and he says, this, something special, 50,000 rubles. So the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rashab, looks at the diamond, they cook, they cook. I don't see anything special. He says, let me tell you how to look at a diamond. <laughs> and he turns it out, you have to look at this. The Rebbe looks and looks at this. I don't see anything. So he gives another tutorial, how diamonds work and what you look for. You know, experts, they tell you what to look for. So you ever go to a wine connoisseur and they tell you why it tastes good and this is the best of the best. And he was trying to do this and the Rebbe keeps saying, I'm sorry, I don't see anything unique. So finally, in frustration, he says, Rebbe, you have to be an expert. This is my, uh, this is my vocation. You know, with all due respect, the Rebbe smiled, and he said, you also have to be an expert. So you're telling me not to mix in to your business. I'm telling you, when it comes to Neshamas, Medav Zayin Have a beautiful and bright Alichtek and Chanukah to all of you. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.